always fought against how I've looked. I look slightly younger, probably due to the melanin in my skin, than I am. I don't know if I do actually, because I think all Asian women look my age at my age, but, and hopefully that's changing now, but having long hair wasn't great in news and, you know. Really? Yeah, because it, you don't have, you needed to have the newsreader bob. There was always a certain look, you know, to look authoritative. A bit People more had austere and yeah. hair straight down. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was told to cut my hair. I was told to straighten my hair because curly hair is th- was thought of as frivolous. You're not That's thought of bonkers. as yeah. These were things that were said. To, I mean, you know, were said to me quite openly. It doesn't help. I'm only five foot one, so being a sort of smaller stature. Your thought of, you know, people used to tap your head as if you were a child if they were standing next to you. People mm. talk to you differently when you're not tall. All those things worked against me. I was told, well, actually, you're not right for a daytime audience because people will still remember you on Newsround. Even though on BBC One on Newsround, most of my viewers were over 60. And also, I do think that that comes from a place of not knowing that, well, this is what 40-year-old women of my colour look like. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018, in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Sonali Shah is a freelance broadcaster, best known for being one of the faces of BBC events, BBC Sport and Escape to the Country, and before that, a long-serving presenter of Newsround. Sonali began her professional broadcasting career in BBC Radio soon after graduating from university and went on to produce and present news and business programmes on the World Service and Radio 5 Live. Known for her roles in the BBC's coverage of many marquee live events over recent years, including the Queen's 90th birthday, the Royal Wedding, the Lord Mayor's Show, Wimbledon and the London Marathon, Sonali honed her skills during a five-year stint on the BAFTA award-winning newsround, including presenting from the Beijing Olympics and filming special reports from Haiti and Afghanistan. Away from the camera, Sonali is an ambassador for the Prince's Trust and the British Asian Trust and regularly supports Great Ormond Street Hospital and Barnardo's. She was shortlisted for a Woman of the Future Award in the Arts, Media and Culture category in 2012. I grew up in northwest London, where I actually still live, so I've never really left the hood, the area, um, or just that corridor from the London, northwest London corridor, apart from three years at university in Nottingham, where everyone walked a lot slower. So I'm, I am one of those, I love London, absolutely love London, and don't, I don't really apologise for it. So many people feel like they have to apologise for that now. It's not very trendy, is it? It's nicer to be in the regions, but I'm a sort of product of Bradford. My parents met when they were both studying in Bradford in the 70s. And then they both moved down to London for jobs. So I was born in London and I've just, I just really love it. And really 
chilled out, nice, simple childhood. Um, dad is a pharmacist, mum is a midwife. They both worked. We just had a lot of fun. It, I have a younger brother, a nuclear family. You know, it's, it was just a really nice upbringing where we never really felt without, even though we weren't, we didn't have a huge amount because they both moved here as students and without much at all and had to sort of set up. They were both born under British rule in East Africa. And my grandparents were born under British rule in India. So it's sort of three generations of, well, two generations. And then I'm the first generation here of being born under British rule. So I guess I'm a child of the, the Commonwealth or the empire. My mum was born in Kenya, my dad in Tanzania. So my gran, my dad's mum still lives there. So we have lots of family in East Africa still. Um, and in fact, I was due to be there this weekend. I was due to go and visit my granny in Tanzania. But yeah. So what were you like at school? Were you a good student? Yeah, I loved school, really into science, just really just conscientious. And that was just natural. It wasn't forced. It wasn't, I just, I'm still like that. I love learning. I love reading and facts. And I'm just a fact geek and just have always been that. I've just, I can't not read. I'm really rude at a dinner table. If the family's there, I'll still have a newspaper to the side and I'll still be reading bits while I'm talking. And it's, I, you know, I used to read cereal boxes if there was nothing else to read. And if I'm watching TV, I'm still on a laptop or my phone. And I feel like I need to, you know, I just need to read all the time. It's just, I probably haven't read very many books since having kids. So it's still always newspapers and magazines at the moment because I just don't have time, but I just, I love news. I think when you're in news, you can't not read all the time, I think. But yeah, very studious and just loved school really. And um, just the process of learning. Not a great fan of exams, <laughs> preferred the coursework, but yeah. Did okay in them because I sort of kept it up and everything. Yeah. Was there an expectation that you would go into medicine? I have a, a very medical family, a lot of doctors um, and medical staff and, and so people in that field. So I, I felt that science would be the right path for me and did science A-levels. I did biology, chemistry and psychology in the end. I changed maths to psychology because I wanted an English-based subject and I loved learning about psychology and the sort of, I'm just really interested in human relationships and the human mind and so chose that for, for A-levels and I wanted to do medicine and I really wanted to be a neonatalist or a paediatrician and had even gone to that extent of choosing what I might want to do. I didn't want to be a GP and then in my final year of A-level we were really encouraged at school to volunteer so we used to I, I paired up with um, a local neighbour who was blind who I then used to go weekly to read to and things like that so I then thought, well, actually, if I can try and do some voluntary work at a hospital, if I want to eventually work at a hospital, it was this weird thinking. I mean, I, I chose Latin GCSE thinking that would help me do medicine because it would help me learn to be name. So honestly, my thinking was just, you know, I thought it was really strategic. So I, I volunteered at a local hospital radio station. I used to go to the cancer ward and go in and chat to everyone and take requests for which piece of music they wanted and then play it out on the radio. And I thought that would bring me closer to medicine, but actually I ended up developing this love of talking, which I always had. That's the one thing I did used to get told off at school for, was talking in class. And my mum always used to say, your mouth will be the making and breaking of you. <laughs> or making or breaking of you. I, don't, I, I can't remember which way around she said it. And then she suggested it. She, you know, I was sort of looking at all the UCAS stuff for medicine and wondering if I could 
you know, what I should do. And she just said, well, why don't you try and do something different? And if that doesn't work out, you've got your science A-levels to fall back mm. on. And so I just thought, shall I try journalism? But I, it was really hard at the time. I only remember Gargi Patel, I think, being on BBC. You know, there was the time in the 80s and 90s where if there was a brown face on TV, your whole family shouted and we all rushed to the TV. And it was those days. So it was a bit daunting because I didn't really know anyone in that field. And actually, when we, I started telling parts of the community that I was doing journalism, it was that time where look, there were a lot of people doing media courses. This was the late 90s. And people just assumed that I'd failed my A-levels. That must yeah. be why I'm a, a proper profession. And I'd really toyed with the idea of being a lawyer too, because again, I love arguing. <laughs> and, and everyone knows it. And I just loved law programs. We used to watch LA Law at home and you know, ER and all those things. And I just, I wanted to be in one of those professions. But actually, I think my parents just encouraged me to think outside the box because they felt especially my dad, never really had a choice of what to do. He's still a pharmacist at the age of 67, worked throughout lockdown. He still does it and likes running his own business. But they didn't have a lot of choice in what they could study. They could study one of four or five things. And he, they just felt, look, you're in a position where we've come to this country. We've made, you know, we've made sure you've got a roof over your head. We can help you go to university. Just choose whatever you want. Just make sure you get... My dad was really into me getting A's. So that was it, really. It was just, it was Asian parents who weren't very stereotypical for the 90s, really. And you trained as a dancer as well, didn't you, for 10 years? Yeah, I, yeah, I, did. I studied classical Indian dance from the ages of about five to 10. I never did any exams in any of the things I learned, and which was I was quite glad about in that sense. I never really did grading of, of music or dance. But I did about five years of classical which is a great grounding, and then continued to dance until I went to university where I took up Taekwondo instead. And then, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I hadn't really done a martial arts, so I, and actually it's a great way of keeping fit. And I think I was dating someone who is a black belt oh. in karate. That's probably part of the reason. And then we used to come home and eat a whole Domino's afterwards anyway, and a whole people <laughs> And then started up again quite recently. So I've always danced a little bit. I took a break from university. And now I've started up again last year, just learning again and going to actual classes again. I did a bit of street dancing in the middle and tried to learn a bit of contemporary and modern when I came back from university. But I just love it. I mean, who doesn't love a dance class? I mean, I'm pretty bad at it compared to the class I'm in. I'm in this class full of 20-something. So, you know and I'm 14 this month, and their memory and the, the way their body can move is just different. And you, you think you're a certain age until you see people who <laughs> 20 years younger than you do the same thing. And it's amazing how it, it kind of ages me, but at the same time, I, I don't really care because I kind of feel like it's really nice. It's a nice example to set to my kids who love doing dance workouts. So during lockdown, we've been doing dance workouts online. Really? They love all of that. And I think it's, all the things we used to do when the kids were at school, when we weren't working, you know, like laundry and working out or 
whatever it may be, they see you doing it now. And I think that's a better influence. Mm. They always say you should go back to the hobbies you had as a child because you were doing them because you genuinely loved them. You weren't doing them because you thought you had to lose weight or keep fit or for your mental health. You're just doing it because you were passionate and like little children are, they just love, don't they? So you should go back to the hobbies you had then. That's so true. Mm. Well, I've done the dancing. I maybe did like a month of singing lessons, so maybe I should try again to actually be good at karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing with a career in media, you must have done a lot of work experience and you're mentioning hospital radio, but what was your first job out of university and into the world of media and journalism? I did do a lot of work experience. I remember doing a day on Newsnight. There'd been a plane crash and my job was to count up the nationalities of all the oh, bodies that's why I remember doing that and actually I, I realized how I love being in a newsroom I but my very first job actually was straight out of university I was a bre the breakfast news presenter for Sunrise Radio which was a, an Asian radio station uh, based out of Southall and it was just a great job to have because you had this sort of instant it was a station at the time, so this was 2001, which every Asian household that I knew used to listen to. I think things have really changed dramatically since then, but it was the station that everyone around us in London listened to. And so everyone knew Tony Patty, the presenter, and I became his news presenter. And that was, it, you know, you're thrown straight in. And I wasn't sure at university about, I mean, I definitely wanted radio rather than TV. I did broadcast journalism at university at Nottingham Trent. And it was radio and TV and my dissertation was in radio. I wasn't a TV fan and loved the medium of radio and how much you could say in radio and didn't need to worry about pictures. So that was definitely my favorite medium. So to get a job while I was still sort of there was amazing and loved being a breakfast news presenter. The pay wasn't amazing, and I used to work five and a half or six days a week. So it encouraged me to quickly try and find something else. So within six months, I'd already found a job which paid the same for three days a week at the World Service as a business journalist, so a business producer, not a reporter or a presenter at the World Service for a program called the World, well, it was World Business Report, but you used to also do all the business news into other programs for the World Service. And again, that was really another proud moment because having a family, an international family, you know, people could hear me, my grandparents could hear me in Tanzania. It was such a good, the World Service was something so revered. World TV at the time, I don't know, even sure it existed because, you know, growing up there wasn't that many TV channels when we were summering in East Africa, but World Service Radio was just as so huge in East Africa. So to be able to work on that from the age of 21 was amazing. So, and it was in Bush House in London, you know, at the end of Aldwych, it's just a lovely building to work in, which now is, belongs to King's College. But yeah, that was great too. So you're probably, I'd say best known sounds rude because you've had such a wide and varied career and you've done an awful lot of events journalism too. So obviously a very vested interest in sports, but also covering the Queen's birthday, Royal Wedding, Lord Mayor's show. But Newsround, you were at Newsround for five years, which is remarkable. But I think also when you think of Newsround, People think, oh, obviously, of the simplicity of the news journalism and the storytelling. But you, I mean, you did special reports from Haiti and Afghanistan. So it, by no means was it, I don't want to say use the word easy, but do you know what I mean? It was kind of, it's still challenging and pertinent. And you're trying to tell 
news to an audience of younger people and trying to get them to understand the real complexities of the world. So how was that for you? You've hit the nail on the head on the, on the conundrum that was, in a way, the PR of Newsround. If you were a journalist that worked on a tabloid newspaper or a radio station like Five Live, where the language is always a bit simpler, or children's news, you understood how it, it's probably one of the hardest things to do. If you can explain what's happening in the economy to a nine-year-old, you know your subject inside out. You mm. couldn't read Reuters copy and just copy the first two lines. You really needed to understand your subject. But the myth and the, and the challenge we always had, and I had subsequently, you know, in a way I had quite an issue leaving Newground because there was this perception that you were a child journalist almost. And it didn't help that I've looked younger than my age, you know, for a lot of my career. And, you know, we can go on to that. But I went into Newsround in my late 20s. I already had a career as a business journalist and reporter and presenter before that. And I got the job quite accidentally at Newsround. So I didn't start my journalism career at Newsround. And actually, I'm glad I did. It is a it's a great training ground for certain people, but I had already done five years of journalism before going there. And what I needed to really, I mean, I, I learned how to be a better journalist, absolutely. My writing improved incredibly. But I, what I really learned there was how to be a, a TV presenter was, you know, I was awful. I, I don't even understand how I was high. I was absolutely awful my first good few months, I would say. But to write for a TV audience that is so young, you needed to know your subject inside out. And as you say, you know, I did trips to Haiti after the earthquake there. I went to China. I did a two, it was three months after the Sichuan earthquake there, but also then I covered the Beijing games. I went to Afghanistan to talk about children who'd always grown up in a world war zone. It is really tough and it's tough to explain it to a, an audience that is so young without overwhelming them. And I think sometimes the news just isn't simple enough for a lot of people, for people whose English, you know, for English isn't a first language. So my mum used to enjoy watching Newsround. Now she's spoken English since school in Nairobi, but actually she just loved the simplicity of it. And that I think is harder than people like to give it credit for. So when I came out of Newsround, I almost had this children's presenter label attached to it which didn't really help because the people that hadn't really watched Newsround thought that you weren't a strong journalist, but the people who had worked on it, and you know, I think it's really different now. People respect it in a way that they never really, really did or appreciated it. But if you look at the alumni that have come oh, out, Etching yeah. Christian Guru Murphy or John Craven, you know, it, you've got incredible journalists who are doing great things even now. And I kind of left news after that because I'd learned how to be, a presenter with a personality and thought I would find it quite difficult to stand outside a court and be mm. quite that, that sort of impartial journalist that that was needed for that kind of journalism so I made a conscious decision afterwards to enter sports presenting and events presenting because in a way you know you had the freedom at a place like Newsround where you could choose the right if Chelsea won the Premier League 
That could be your top story. You could have sport as your top story. And I think you're seeing that more and more in a mainstream newsroom now. The news at 10 will choose. It doesn't have to be news than sport. Then It can be anything you want it to be. So in a way, we were doing stuff first and had the confidence to do first that other people are now doing. But I definitely missed news afterwards. And I'm glad I came back into it. But I really, really missed news. But I love live events. I just love, whether it be Wimbledon or you know, the Queen's birthday parade, which we were lucky enough to do something on this year. They had a, a small, they, they cancelled Trooping the Colour, but they had something small at Windsor. Mm. I just love being part of what people might be watching as a nation, that collective thing, which is really rare nowadays. But I just love being part of that live event and, you know, Olympic Games or whatever it might yeah. be. And a real buzz with live telly that you, you just don't get if you're doing other sorts of programming. I think there also is a genuine skill to live reporting and being somewhere live. And you don't really acknowledge it as a viewer until you see someone do it badly and you're almost kind <laughs> of you know, cringing with them. Or so, I mean, your career, as we mentioned, has been so multifaceted across all the work you've done is there any one thing is that possible in particular that stands out or that you're particularly proud of I I I just really like the journey that I've been on which sounds a bit cliche but I like that I started off as a business journalist a consumer journalist and then went on to do children's news and then after that was able to you know work on a home olympic games and go to delhi for the commonwealth games and it's just taken me around the world so i love the fact that my job has opened my eyes as well to the world and you know for the last five years i've been doing escape to the country which is pre-recorded which actually i found really really hard at first because even though it's daytime telly it's easy viewing it's like a guilty pleasure you know you get students on twitter laughing about the fact that they're watching this program going, I can't believe this is my life now. But I found it hard because it wasn't live. And in a way I had to sort of start training my brain to just treat it as live. So I go into a house and I just chat and forget that this is pre-recorded. And I found that easier. And normally people find live harder, but I think when you've started in live radio, it's harder then, you find it quite weird to do second takes of things. You're like, oh gosh. Mm. So I found that hard, but I love the fact that doing a property show, which is such, as you say, my own personal passion, homes and property and interior design. And, you know, I've just built my own house. So it was always a dream of mine to do that thing. I was able to work in that field. I never thought I could work in something like that, a property program in the country. I didn't think that was possible, but... I was really lucky that my ex-boss at CBBC ended up moving to daytime and understood what I was capable of doing and what I could bring to a show like that that someone else couldn't. Because I've always fought against how I've looked. I look slightly younger, probably due to the melanin in my skin, than I am. I don't know if I do, actually, because I think all Asian women look my age at my age. But And hopefully that's changing now. But having long hair wasn't great in news and... You know, really? Yeah, because it, you don't have, you needed to have the newsreader bob. And I think th- there was always a certain look, you know, to look authoritative. A bit People more austere a, and yeah, hair straight down. I, yeah, yeah. I was told to cut my hair. I was told to straighten my hair because curly hair is th- was thought of as frivolous. You're not That's thought of bonkers. as yeah. These were things that were said, I mean, you know, were said to me quite openly, it doesn't help I'm only five foot one. So being a sort of smaller stature, 
your thought of, you know, people used to tap your head as if you were a child if they were standing next to you. People mm. talk to you differently when you're not tall. All those things worked against me. I was told, well, actually, you're not right for a daytime audience because people will still remember you on Newsround. Even though on BBC One on Newsround, most of my viewers were over 60. And also, I do think that that comes from a place of not knowing that, well, this is what 40-year-old women of my colour look like. So what, we can't be, you know, it's, it's sort of someone's perception of what authoritative is. Mm. And yeah, it, it took a while to sort of try and prove, to, to sort of, the, you know, needing clear blue water between you and Newsround, which I hated because I was so proud of my time at Newsround, but because people didn't understand that yeah. you could do other programming. It was really, really, that was, that was tough. It was tough, you know, up in the years after Newsround, but... Hopefully those things are changing now. We're seeing so many more people who look different everywhere, working in different jobs. Hopefully those stereotypes, you know, people can kind of get rid of them a little bit. The Women of the Future programme, which obviously you're involved with, the mantra is kindness and collaboration. Has there been a person in your career journey that has helped you particularly? Or you were just talking then about a commissioner that moved across from CBBC that knew how good you were and wanted you involved in daytime TV. Has there been anyone else like that that you would say helped, not guide you, I suppose, but give you the opportunity or open a door for you? What I've always done is made, I have always asked people for advice. It's always been different people in each job. For example, when I was doing sports news on the Today programme, I would go over to Michelle Hussain, who had had a similar path in the sense that she had worked in the business unit for a while too and worked at the World Service too. And I would just pop over and sometimes ask her for advice or just text her to say, what do you think about this? I would ask Rita Lashar because I knew her through my community and I think my aunt named her and there was a connection there and she doesn't live far from me. And I would, I would just go to people with more experience than me and I would just ask them advice. And, you know, Jeff Randall in the business unit, who was my business editor, Evan Davis, when I got the news ranking, I remember asking Evan Davis, who wasn't a presenter at the time. And there was this bit of a stigma about going from reporting to being a presenter. And he said, that's the problem. You know, people become presenters and then you're not, no longer the journalist you wanted to be. And ironically, he ended up doing the same thing. And <laughs> we both wanted to still remain the journalist we want to be. But I've always gone to different people for advice. Sinead Rocks, my first editor at Newsround, she laughs that I was awful as well, and she's now at Channel 4. But I've always still have gone to people for advice, and I'm still learning. I still go to people for advice. And I think it's okay to ask questions. Claire Balding has given me a lot of advice about, well, just by broadcasting herself, actually. You know, she, she's always been around to sort of ask questions to. And one of the great things she taught me is be honest with the audience when you're in live telly things go wrong just say it's going wrong and actually that's what we do and that's what, yesterday we saw those clips of two interviews i think one was on bbc one was sky where a child came running in yeah oh, well, brilliant because in a way yeah it must have been mortifying if you are that parent and you've done your hardest to put the telly yeah. on or anything else and that's happening because I, I do my best to avoid it too. I'm on a day-to-day -day where they're both at school, so it's okay. But what, what really upset me is some of the comments underneath those things that said, 
well, can't they control their children? Or this is not what I pay my license fee. That's crazy. Like, but this is the reality of life. And you can empathize. Everyone can empathize with that situation. It's, and it makes you laugh because we've been there. You can put yourself in that position, can't you? But maybe we'll now take more note of Claire the next time she's on something. You know, we all of us took more note of North Korea after it happened a couple of years ago with the professor whose kid walked in. You know, it's That's hilarious. Yeah, it just humanizes people and it humanizes stories that we're hearing of every day these updates actually it gets you a little bit more of an interest in news so yeah i just i think being truthful with the audience and for me that was part of being truthful about a life and the way it was handled on the bbc was amazing because the presenter said oh i think it looks better on there and you know right some quick fire questions what would you describe as your greatest success oh my gosh uh, <laughs> you'd given these to me beforehand this is the whole idea off the cuff come on i don't you know i honestly don't look back and review my life ever and i should do but i feel like i'll do that in my 70s so i never take stock and i never assess and i try not to watch it and watch myself back um my greatest success probably just making my parents proud you know going to the cricket world cup made my dad really proud ending up on a program like escape to the country made my mom really proud i think just making my parents proud in the way that they worked so hard in the 70s and 80s and 90s to give us what we could have mm. yeah i think probably just not disappointing them really that's, probably the that's lovely and your greatest failure um gosh just Greatest fate. Well, I've just, I think learning that you will mess up on air and it's okay. I'm not saving lives. You know, at least I'm not a doctor or a surgeon. <laughs> kind of just, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever sort of beat myself up too much about mistakes on air as long as I've learned from them. So again, I'm, I'm kind of, it's not like I'm a no regrets person, but I just feel like it's always something you can learn from. The mantra of Women of the Future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? I think professionally it means trying to help, you know, now if a 20 something comes up to me and, and asks me advice, I always remember being that 20 something. So I always try to give as much advice or be as useful as I can in that so just the sisterhood or it doesn't have to be just with other women but just that being around and being aware that people look to you as well being aware of what you represent i don't think about being asian all the time in, in fact growing up i hardly thought about it apart from when i was called the p word and then i used to be a real geek about it and give them a history of the subcontinent but um i think just trying to not take the ladder away once I've got somewhere and try and bring people into the fold or recommend people, even if it's just a makeup artist that I've noticed that isn't giving, getting much work, but is amazing that I've met here. Well, the next time I'm asked on a production, well, have you got a makeup artist? I don't have a favorite, but actually if I realize that someone might need a bit of a hand and I hope someone would do that for me. And I think it's just kind of passing that goodwill along paying it forward yeah, yeah it, that's a great way of putting it exactly and i i really believe in that personally too i think just being around i think for people when they need it 
people don't always want to hear advice, do they? So you kind of have to be wait. You know, I like to try and wait. <laughs> I'm asked, but yeah, there are times probably personally I've just given my advice anyway. Is there anything that scares you? I've never not worked. So in a way that's because I've never not worked and been lucky enough to never not work. You know, even during having kids and, and you know, I think I took six weeks off for the first child and nine weeks for the child too, because I was a freelancer at the time. So I've never had maternity. That's not to say, hey, look at me, this is what I've done. That's by no means a badge of honor. It's just, that's all I've ever really known and had to do. That probably not working scares me. Um, Having children actually really, really still scares me. And, and it, I find having children quite hard in a weird way because it, I find it just quite, you know, it's, it's just this treadmill. So there's really ability. Yeah, exactly. Of kind of keeping someone else alive and nurturing <laughs> them. Just to everything. I, I really, honestly, I, I used to expect so much. And now I just, at the end of the day, they're alive and smiling. I'm like, okay, I've achieved it and kind of really have taken the pressure off myself. But yeah, I, I find motherhood quite scary and I find not working or the prospect of not working scary. So hopefully, I don't know, I don't know, but maybe I'll choose to retire this year, I don't know. What's left on your to-do list? You've got a big birthday coming up, haven't you? I've got a big birthday, which I was meant to be spending a month in East Africa and kind of taking the kids on safari. So that will all be on hold. Maybe I'll just celebrate it next year. I'm not a massive birthday person anyway. I never really do parties or anything. So I'm kind of fine about having a glass of champagne at home. It'll still be my 40th, whether I'm there or on a beach in Kenya. But um, I always wanted to go back to working on a daily program, which I'm not sure will happen anymore. I used to love working on a daily program when it was news round. And when I was younger, I wanted to be Oprah. So kind of being on that magazine show and doing something like that. So that's what I miss in my career. I love everything else I do, the big live events and the one-off docs and escape to the country. And I love traveling around Britain and discovering parts of Britain. But you do a lot of amb- ambassador work as well, don't you? For Prince's Trust. Yeah, I, I wanted to choose two or three charities that felt personal. So I really wanted to do something with business and entrepreneurship and just giving someone that kind of little push just when they need it in their teens or early 20s or whenever actually and I love that about the Prince's Trust so for me and I think that's starting off as a business journalist and being around business my whole life my dad owned a pharmacy I worked from the age of 11 in that pharmacy so it's being around business all my life I really have seen how just a little help here and there can really get someone's business off the ground so that's why I chose the Prince's Trust the British Asian Trust, because I wanted something that educated girls in the subcontinent, in South Asia, you know, having gone to Afghanistan and seen all these girls that were never allowed to study. And I just felt that it was such a privilege that so many people take for granted. So the British Asian Trust, who now do so much more work than just educating girls in India and Pakistan and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, you know, they, they work on child trafficking and mental health as well. It's expanded so much since I joined them. And then I support the Great Ormond Street Hospital just because family members have been treated there. And then I'm, I've recently became an ambassador for Bernardo's as well. And I think that the children's chat, the oldest children's charity in this country just mm. was a great fit with my background and my professional and personal background. So all three, it's, they're very considered charities. They're very personal and they target personal passions of mine. 
And I do give a lot of time when they need it. And normally it's hosting things for them. So it's my skill for them. But I can't really do those things without the grandmothers looking after the kids. You know, I always think of it as a sort of family thing that we do. I might be the face of it, but you can only give your time to something if if someone else is covering for you somewhere else. So Mm. I feel lucky that I can give my time to those causes. You know, sometimes you just can't, you can't take that time off work. But I think being a freelancer means you can manage your diary in a way. How have your family found the pandemic? How have you guys managed? It was weird. Homeschool, well, I clearly was not a great teacher because my daughter could not say yes fast enough when the schools reopened. (laughs) I think I was too strict, actually. And it did feel like school. So it's been really strange. My husband works in, you know, has interest in hospitality so that's been really really tough because that's mm. one of it's been really hard hit I've been managing to work a little bit so a lot of the filming was put on hold but I you know I worked with ITV tonight so things that were key worker stuff and lockdown related we, I could do and so it's helped me actually get a bit more back into news which was nice it's been nice having the kids home and having that time for them I think what I think the children actually will always remember it as the time that their parents were at home. So in that way, but in all honesty, they flew by and all being in one, you know, they were quite hard. So, but I'm less daunted about the summer now because actually I've had two months trying to work and what everyone's doing, it's, I really, I think society, it's interesting now. It's a sort of real social study as well as the health study and the economic study of the changes that people might make in their lives or will they go back to exactly how they were doing things and i i hope people have learned things but it's been such an awful time for so many people and i think the tough times are yet to come you know health-wise it's been really really tough but i think now economically Mm. people are really going to feel it and i think i'm quite aware of that that i was lucky that I was living with my mum in December and I'm lucky that we got back into our house that we were building before lockdown. We've had no garden because it's, it's just been a mud pit, but so many people don't have gardens. And we just used to use my mum's driveway and, you know, try and test so the kids could have somewhere to play and things yeah. like that. And just, it's just a bit more of an awareness of what people must be going to. But we've been, you know, my dad's still working. Our family business is a pharmacy and that's still been running throughout. So we haven't had that and I've been working and I went up to Manchester and stayed in a key worker hotel. So we haven't had that. There's loads of families that have been properly locked down and we haven't really had that. We've still been out there in the community and that's been quite interesting. The different perspectives of people who are either furloughed or kind of just, bo- or, you know, pe- people being bored. I really genuinely thought, how are you bored? Mm. I, haven't, I, haven't, I still didn't read a book over <laughs> lockdown. How have you been bored? But the experience has been so different for different people, hasn't it? It really has. And well done on building a house, by the way. It looks amazing from what I can see. It's been an absolute dream. My parents did it when I was 13. They were looking for a house and they found a plot of land in Zone 5 in London. And we all were part of it. And, you know, um, it became my GCSE project in the end of design technology and designing the garden. So it's always been a dream. But that's why you might appreciate why something like Escape to the Country wasn't just, oh, it's my guilt. It, it's been a dream, that yeah. kind of program and that kind, you know, I, I love those kind of programs. So, you know, anything to do with house design and that's why, actually, when you watch me on it, I'm constantly giving people advice about not where they could knock down a wall, whether they want it or not. <laughs> oh, yeah, you could just knock that down. <laughs> just take that down. It's fine. Yeah. 
Someone? Well, I, I think I just, I, that's how my mind works. I, it, it works in spaces and seeing things and yeah. So it was always a dream and it was a dream before 40 actually. So I've just snuck in. I did it. Congratulations. Yeah. The planning took ages and you know how it is. I bet. I don't even know where you would start with something like that in all honesty. So well done. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It's tough. It, 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 it's not easy. We've had some friends do it. It's not easy. But once you've done one, you kind of understand where to... Have you got, have you got the bug now? Are you going to do it again? I don't know, because it was a real personal passion project. I don't know if people want my opinion on home decor. I've only ever done it for family, you know, my own family mm. home. So I don't know if it's something... You know, I'm not going to start flipping houses now <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know maybe that's you know maybe this is a post covid let's see how the property market goes i'm just happy it's back yeah. yeah i'm just happy it's back up and running and i want to get back out to the countryside now and start to... what's really interesting is the amount of people that have made a decision in, to change where they live because space and your home and your possible garden or balcony or any open air or even a, you know the way your window opens has been never been more important now in a way and as we go forward if more of us are working from home so I, I think that's really interesting now and so many people I've spoken to have made the decision already to leave cities and I think that that social phenomenon is going to be really really interesting. Thank you so much Sonali it's been really lovely speaking to you and thank you for taking the time. Well, no thank you for having me on you've just had some amazing guests and I love the podcast so it's an honour. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.